From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get to the latest on Israel because it uh, just once again, we're just waiting, it seems like, for Israel to make the next move here and how decisive it will be. Mick Mulroy joins us. He's a former CIA power military officer and he's a co-founder of the Lobo Institute. Uh, Mick, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, it, it just it seems like everything we see and read from all the reporting that Israel is going to go big into Gaza. Uh, I guess the question is when and then what do you think, I guess more importantly, what do you think a realistic objective for them is? Well, it's good to be with you guys. I do believe it's coming up. So I think we're in the last stages of preparations. We've seen the, the preparatory fires to soften up the targets, take out some leadership. We've seen some small incursions probably by special operations forces to try to find the best route for the main body to get in and potentially to try to get information on where the hostages could be. And now we're going to see a giant movement of all these tanks and armored personnel carriers and you know combat engineer vehicles they're going to leave the assembly area. They're going to get in their attack formations and then uh, likely enter from Arez up at the top because that's the best when it comes to terrain for all these uh, formations to get into and then funnel in to the top going straight toward Gaza City. And to your point, they're going big and it's going to be violent. They'll probably have some come in from the sea to create a dilemma from Hamas, maybe some coming from the air to try to drop behind them in central uh in central gaza to also to try to create a dilemma and envelop them but once they get into the the actual fighting it's going to be block by block um i'm hearing uh the israeli planners that talk to me talk about upper and lower gaza upper being buildings and everything that you see normally in a city lower is all these tunnels there's around 300 miles of tunnels down there and that's going to be a bear uh militarily to try to conquer how deep are the tunnels? Why can't a couple of questions I've had, um, and maybe you can help, Mick. Uh, how do they block the sea border? I mean, why wouldn't people in Gaza be able to get out on boats or you know even swimming? As rudimentary as it sounds, right? They they're on the sea. How do they block that? So there's been a blockade, a naval blockade, in place by the Israelis for some time because that was one of the means of which. Uh, Iran, quite frankly, smuggled weapons into Gaza. The other was through the tunnels uh, leading into Egypt. So that's been blocked. Um, if boats were allowed in, there could be some expels, uh, you know, civilians leaving that way. But I don't think the Israelis are letting any 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 vessels in any of the sea space right off the coast of Gaza. I do think they'll try some kind of amphibious landing, maybe just a small special operations type force or more like a giant or a, you know a large marine formation like the like the marine corps type formation hitting hitting the beach I, most I also, everybody is going south via vehicle or foot i i also wonder you know we wondered uh we talk about the objective for israel but going back to the terrorist attacks that we saw last week wh why did hamas do that uh, other than you know uh spreading terror and i guess you know retaliation against what they feel has been uh, done to them. Do you think they're trying to bait the Israelis into Gaza? Yes, and that's a good that's a good uh, point of your question. So when they attacked Israel like this, they had to know that this was going to happen, and I think they did. Uh, why did they do it? Obviously, to your point, terror, they're a terrorist organization, been designated as such since 1997. Uh, but also, 
they want to disrupt all of the diplomatic efforts in the region. We've already had the Abraham Accords, Saudi Arabia and Israel. We're getting close to, to normalizing relations. This is not good for Hamas. It's not good for Iran. And if it's not good for Iran, it's not good for Hamas or Hezbollah. And that's potentially part of what they're trying to do. And then the last part militarily is to get them into a fight like this, because the IDF is one of the most advanced militaries in the world. But urban fighting, tunneled fighting, is subterranean fighting is it takes away a lot of those advantages and they have this place wired literally to fight the benefit on their on their side so that is why they want the idf to get into this battle inside gaza city for example hey mick i mean have do you think the idf has been able to identify over the years who actually is in hamas i mean the leadership is one thing but of the 1,500 or so Hamas terrorists that came across the border, does Israel know who they are? Does it, did they know really, can they really neutralize Hamas as a terrorist organization? So there's gonna be, a lot of the Hamas fighters are gonna fight, so they're, they're gonna die. Okay. And that's gonna be, then they're gonna gather all those, and then the ones that they capture, they're gonna go through every camera, uh, that, and of course, Israel, like most modern countries, has cameras everywhere, and try to make sure that they've identified everybody either dead or alive, that took part of that operation. And they also keep detailed records on who they believe is in Hamas and their leader. Sinwar is in Gaza City. He is, he is one of the most significant leaders in Hamas. He's going to be target number one. And they've already taken about 12 of the senior leaders around him out so far, just since the preparatory fires uh, started. And Mick, one question I, I ask kind of consistently to, to guests on this topic is, how much collateral damage do you think Israel is willing to inflict in, in order to uh, achieve their military objectives? Well, I would hope, and I do believe they will, adhere to the law of armed conflict, which is to do everything you can to limit civilian casualties. And the first step is getting this uh, humanitarian corridor that, that allows uh, civilians to leave northern Gaza and move to southern Gaza, hopefully in a UN-sponsored safe haven that's monitored uh, I, there's there's plenty of uh, effort underway to set that up. Um, but I do think Israel, the IDF, will do everything they can to limit civilian casualty. That said, this is urban fighting with armored armored personnel carrier, multi-dimension. Uh, there's no doubt that Hamas is going to hide behind civilians. There's no doubt they have buildings wired and tunnels wired. So there's going to be a lot of civilian casualties, which is why I think there's been so much effort recently to get as many civilians as possible. And I think our last I heard was 500,000 have left northern Gaza. Everybody that can leave should leave. I, you know, um, last week was much harder for me than I expected uh, mentally. And I don't even have a dog in this fight. It just hurt to see all of the uh, damage inflicted by the terrorist attack first and then um, looking at the pictures of women and children in Gaza in the hospitals was also, I mean, the little girls look like my little girl. How do you deal with this as a soldier, as a leader? How do you, how do you deal with that part of it? So that's the part I think that's the most lingering and the stuff that causes, uh, quite frankly, veterans the most grief, along with losing their friends for the longest period of time. You know, you'd hope that if, uh, quite frankly, if adult men would, uh, Star Wars, they should be the ones fighting it, right? Not not little kids as we see around the world in so many places, and certainly not all these innocent civilians who just happen to be caught in the crossfire, as you said, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in uh, Gaza, or whether it's in Ukraine. It's, it's just unacceptable. It's why most of the UN protocols came after World War II, yep. is to try to prevent uh, civilian casualties like this. They just should not be part of anybody's uh, combat operations and their plans. It's, they're, they're, they should be completely excluded. Unfortunately, it looked like Hamas's yep. sole purpose, quite frankly, right. was to kill civilians when they went into Israel. Yep. They actually bypassed many of the IDF yep. areas. Right, now Mick. we need to try to do everything we can to save civilians in Gaza. All right, Mick, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Mick Mulroy of the Lobo Institute. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. 
alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg News out with some reporting today. One of our mostly most read stories of the day, uh, Apple's iPhones. They're off to a sluggish start in China. That's according to a study. So we want to bring in Ed Ludlow. Uh, he knows all about this stuff. He does a lot of work with the folks in Cupertino. Ed Ludlow joins us. He's a host of Bloomberg Technology. So, Ed, what's, what's kind of the background here for iPhone sales in China? I guess it's whether you look at it through the lens of an economist or you look at it through the lens of, of a smartphone market analyst. But this is counterpoint research data that shows for the first 17 days after the iPhone 15 went on sale in China, sales are down 4.5% versus the same comparable period a year ago when the iPhone 14 went on sale. And there are some caveats with that data, right? Because when Apple releases a new generation of iPhone, there is multiple variants. So in this case, the iPhone 15 and 15 Plus, the base models, and then the Pro and Pro Max, the more premium models. But overall, it's down. And, you know, China's economy is super interesting right now. It's an aging economy, but youth unemployment's really high. And I think we get a GDP print for China on, on Wednesday that's likely to show modest uptick on growth quarter on quarter but below its 5% target that Beijing has on an annualized basis. So it could be a softness thing, but it's also a more competitive smartphone market domestically as well. Well, and they've made rules that you're not allowed to bring an iPhone in to certain places, right? It was already right. uncool, I guess, or um, not. I like didn't that. Really yeah. Jibe with the Communist uh, Party um, vibe. But uh, is this a China-specific problem, or do we expect to see reports like this for iPhone sales across other regions as well? So what's fascinating about it is, according to the counterpoint data, it is a China-specific problem, because the counterpoint data showed that on the first nine days of sales in the U.S., iPhone 15 was up significantly compared to the iPhone 14 sales for that first nine-day period a year ago. Um, so that's interesting. It also is completely counter to what we learned so far this year, that in the June quarter, the quarter ending in June, what Apple told us was that China was a point of strength in that domestic Chinese or greater China market. Apple had actually swung to top line growth of 8% from a 3% decline the quarter before. And it was principally driven by iPhone at a time where US or North American smartphone sales were really weak. So the story we're playing, seeing play out reading the tea leaves is that there's a really big tech upgrade cycle going on in the US, not so in China. But remember, in the background, there are domestic smartphone market pressures because some of Chinese players have surprised us with competitive handsets in that period as well. So, I mean, I guess if I were an Apple exec here or, or if I were an investor, my biggest fear would be just as nationalism on the part of the Chinese consumer. Yeah. Are they just not buying American or are they just not buying Apple in this particular case? And they're like 20% yeah. of your customer base, right, Ed? They make a, yes. up a huge chunk of Apple sales. Well, from a, from a revenue perspective, I mean, you, you make t both excellent questions. Just really quick, that even if your unit sales are down overall, remember that the Chinese consumer skews towards the higher end product, the Pro and Pro Max. So you can still grow revenue because of higher average selling prices which is something that Apple's relied on. But I guess it doesn't matter if you look at it as an economist or as a market analyst. Um, how do we price in or understand the effects of that communist policy that Matt was talking about? What Bloomberg's reported is that China's central government basically said to all government agencies and state-backed corporations, tell your staff no iPhones. You cannot bring an iPhone to work. You have to use a domestic model. Um, and everyone was pretty chill and sanguine about that at the time the news came out. We don't know for certain, but the question we're posing is, does this data show that this put off consumers in China from going out and buying because their government said you can't use iPhones in the workplace? All right. So, I mean, I guess, is there, do we have any response out of Cupertino or they, to the extent of their concern here? Uh, no. 
No, Apple not. declined to comment <laughs> on the story. But remember the guidance, right? The guidance was that iPhone sales would accelerate into the last three months of this year. This data conflicts with that guidance. I also feel like it's we do get stories worried about iPhone sales every cycle, right? Is that yes? Just and we're always wrong. My old exactly. Um, it it is true, and this is a company that loves to under promise and over deliver as well. So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting guide, stuff, yeah. and we'll put it into our into our models, Ed. <laughs> but so I'm, so so I. I don't know. I do think what's changed this time around is that the, the big tech surprise was that Huawei brought out the Mate 60 Pro as a competitive 5G enabled handset in China with a semiconductor or, or a, a processor, which was a generation ahead of what we thought China could do. And if you look at the body of the story that Bloomberg wrote, many analysts on Wall Street now believe that Huawei will overtake Apple in China. And that there will be, whether it's nationalism or it's just simply a price point issue, um, there is now a smartphone available in the market made in China by a Chinese company that, that, from a tech perspective at least, gets closer to Apple's iPhone. But the UX Not isn't there. Close. I mean, Ed, I, I imagine you're playing around with a lot of new uh, phones other than Apple. Um, right. Does, does the operating system on anything else approach at all um, the elegance of apples? Not really. No. I mean, the, 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 and, and bear in mind that the Chinese consumer buys motivated by technology. They want the latest technology. You know, I was being asked on a TV show earlier about the comparison between LVMH and Apple. And yes, true, there is kind of a Chinese uh, middle-class consumer that buys Apple because of the Western brand recognition. But they're really highly motivated about technology advancement. And the A17 processor in this iPhone 15 Pro and Pro Max, Apple's yep. latest silicon, was widely to be believed to be a driver of sales because right. of its performance. All right, Ed, great stuff as always, appreciate it. We like the uh, microphone in the shot there. That is very cool. That's a Tom Keen effect, I think, uh, for those that watching Plus on Plus you can see the Golden Gate Bridge behind him. Yeah. What an amazing view. Well, our offices in San Francisco are outstanding, which is no surprise because they're outstanding in every city where we have an office. I don't know how they do it. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Also streaming live on that YouTube thing, so head over to YouTube.com and search Bloomberg Radio. You know, Matt and I were just talking. We may not be long here for this radio business, John, because we're talking about Matt and I are going to go f maybe start a private credit fund. I think that's where we And an go. ETF. And an ETF. Okay, yeah. we'll do an ETF on that as well. So, um, so alternative capital, uh, alternative markets, a growing source of opportunities for retail investors, not just big institutional investors. Michael Weitz joins us. He's the founder and president of Yield Street joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Michael, talk to us about Yield Street. What do you guys do there? And then we'll dig into the kind of the market option. Well, thanks for having me. It's always great to be back here at Bloomberg. So at Yield Street, we are focused on making alternative investments more available. So we want to help people rebalance their portfolios, not to just include stocks and bonds, but to have private market investments alongside them in their portfolio. So at Yield Street, what we do is invest in institutional quality opportunities. Think things like private credit, as you just mentioned, private equity, real estate, fine art, legal finance, structured notes, basically trying to help people access a diversified portfolio of private investments. We put those online or on our app, and we have over 400,000 in our community who are investing in these products all across America. So how do you get uh, these products, which are, I think, some of them intended for sophisticated investors, right? I can't get into a lot of uh, private investments without meeting certain criteria out to a retail investor like me. So there's different buckets in, in the U.S. from a regulatory perspective about what you're able to invest in. I would say our primary investor is going to be an accredited investor. There's 14 million of those that live here in America. The definition of an accredited investor, for those that don't know, is if you're single, you're $200,000. If you're married or filing jointly, it's $300,000 of income or a million dollars of net worth. There are 14 million people like that. The next level are people who are yet to be accredited investor. Hopefully one day they might be. And those are going to be roughly 35 million in Americans who are looking to invest in private markets or alternatives, but don't meet that threshold. 
For that audience of people, there are things like a REIT, a 40 Act Fund, or other types of products that are designed for that audience. And so at Yield Street, we're able to create and package products in a way that's accessible to these various audiences. Interesting. So what are the, you know, we were just talking a little bit about private credit. Talk to us about kind of your experience with private credit, kind of, and, and for your clients as well. Are they asking about private credit? Do they want exposure there? I think you just hit on on a hot button. So, you know, what I've seen is a major shift in investor demand over the last year and a half. If you think back to, let's say, January 22, we were in an incredibly sort of bull cycle at the time, if you will, and investors at large were looking for a great story. They wanted that next real estate opportunity they could own. They wanted that big private equity idea. They wanted that next big venture-backed company. What folks have shifted their appetite amidst all the volatility and the increase in rates is a little bit less volatility, more consistency. They've asked for debt or debt-like products that have consistent coupons and shorter duration. So the most popular things for us now are three to five years, paying some type of a coupon, have a debt-like product in so much as they have collateral. That's really where people have shifted their appetite to. So practically what we've seen is real estate debt, art debt, private credit. So think of like supply chain finance, receivable funding, purchase order funding. So real credit-like instruments. So how do you, so what would be a product if I wanted the internet supply chain thing or if I wanted art debt, what do you do for me? What's your platform do for me? So I think um, I, I think right now it might be available. I'm not sure, but you'd have to look. Um, you'd have to look at the website. So for example, an art debt, right? So we bought a business called Athena Fine Art from Carlisle in 2019. I think we paid roughly 170 million dollars for it, and that is the sort of the preeminent blue chip fine art lender in America. What the product will offer you is a diversified portfolio of loans that we've made to collectors or galleries or dealers who put up collateral of fine art, so call it five or $10 million pieces of art, we'll lend them 40 or 50% loan to value. We put it in one portfolio so you get diversification and we'll pay you 10% per quarter for investing in that product, okay? That's the, the art, for example. In our supply chain product, we have a product in supply chain where I think we've invested north of $600 million since we started that product. And what you will invest in is a six month supply chain offering. So you're investing in an opportunity to put up dollars today as the product is delivered and paid for by a company that's doing north of $2 billion in revenue. In six months' time, they will pay us back and we will make a, we will make a payment to our investors. I believe that's 11% annually and pays in, in six months. So those are some ideas of, of how credit works. In the real estate debt, it could be a one to two year bridge loan financing or a senior, or a senior mortgage. And I, I can carry on sort of across the gamut, but those are- Legal legal finance is another thing that you do, right? Yes, indeed. So uh, what does that mean? Like if you're, um, someone wants to bring a big lawsuit um, against a defendant, needs to fund that, and then you take a cut of the winnings? So in legal finance, there are different aspects of that industry across sort of the risk return gamut. So you have, I would say, look, the safest part of the industry is a settled case financing. So somebody has achieved the settlement, the settlement is to be paid over a period of time. I see, I see, I They see. want to access some capital earlier. So effectively, you are buying a stream of cash flow in the future that's already been agreed upon and settled. The second bucket is what we would call law firm financing. So you have many law firms that only, um, I would say, practice on a success fee. And so their cash flow is very lumpy, but they may have a huge inventory of investments, but they want to you know, be able to manage their cash flow needs. And so you will make a loan to the law firm, and as the law firm generates cash flow from its various cases, it will repay its investors. The next bucket is going to be more risky, whereas you can take an interest in, if you will, alongside a plaintiff. So somebody may come and say, hey, we're going to pursue you know, this corporation for doing something terrible, and we believe we have a case, we need some capital to be able to pursue that case or to be able to meet our, our sort of expenses on an ongoing basis, would you like to share in the winnings with me? So there's different ways to invest in legal finance. Prior to starting Yield Street, I was one of the sort of the preeminent players in legal finance dating back to 2009. So it's an asset class we know super well. It's an area that I think Yield Street has a tremendous amount of respect on the street and continues to invest actively in. But essentially, I mean, the 10,000 foot view is you're looking at uh, 
people that have illiquid assets that need access to cash. And so you're willing to put up some cash against some of their less liquid assets, like a $5 million painting or, you know, uh, legal fees that are coming in a, in a lumpy way. I definitely think that's a part of the business. I think the macro perspective is 30% of your portfolio should be in alternative investments. People don't know how to access it or have an enjoyable way or right. simple way to access it. It is our duty to help you build a diversified portfolio. We work with the preeminent managers across the street to partner with them and participate and make that available to you. That's a fascinating business. I'm glad we had you in. I didn't even know that stuff existed. So I Thank learned you. something new on in finance. Uh, Michael White's founder and president of Yield Street is the name of the firm. Pretty cool uh, business. We appreciate getting some of his time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us in the studio right here is Bobby Ghosh. He's the editor of Bloomberg Opinion. He joined Bloomberg Opinion in 2018. I'm looking at his CV. Dude, you've been busy. I mean, you've been everywhere. Maybe can't hold a job. We'll have to talk about that later. Uh, but Bobby's been all over the place covering global geopolitics, and we're so fortunate to get a couple minutes of his time here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Bobby, I know you've written extensively on what's happening in Israel. What's your What's your view kind of Right. Well, let, let, let's start with what you think Hamas was intending yes, to do. Right. Like, what did they want with this brutal, um, horrendous terrorist attack beyond spreading, you know, hate and fear? What, what do you think they wanted to achieve? Well, they wanted to achieve uh, a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, they wanted to kill as many Israelis as they could. And they didn't care whether they were civilians, uh, children, women, grown men, civ soldiers. Didn't matter. They just wanted to kill as many people as they could, which is the basic uh, modus operandi of any terrorist group. The second thing they wanted is they wanted to engage, they wanted to bring Israel into Gaza again, bring, sort of bring the fight back into Gaza, where lots of other civilians, now Palestinian civilians, would die. That also suits Hamas perfectly well. They That's, don't mind if their own people absolutely die. Absolutely not. That's where no. they live. That's the whole idea of Hamas. They've always had this sort of apocalyptic view of the world and... and and also, then, then you have some other political uh, objectives. One is to end the uh, rapprochement between Israel and Arab countries, specifically the, the deal that was very slowly developing between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Remember, Hamas also has answers to a master in Tehran, the Iranian regime, which pays their bills and which has supported Hamas for a couple of decades now. This is part of the Iranian agenda as well, to keep the Middle East in play, to keep things unstable so that the eyes of the world are on these various other things when we are not paying attention to what's happening in Iran. So lots of different goals, some big, some small, some very local, some regional. Um, so far, I'm sorry to say, Hamas seems to be achieving most of its goals. So now it's, I guess, the turn of Israel to respond. What do you think they should do and what do you think they will do? going to do exactly what Hamas wants them to do, right? That's... Yeah, I mean, look, Netanyahu is damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. Um, so, as he has always done in his career, he'll be damned if he does. Mm -hmm. um, so, he, I, I suspect he will go in, go in in strength, um, and try to disarm and, and, and decapitate Hamas. But we've learned this from the past, that this is not that kind of a creature. This is right. not a traditional army. This is not even a traditional terrorist group. This is somewhere in between those two things. And so going in, guns blazing, bringing down entire neighborhoods, uh, forcing a million Palestinians in Gaza to, to uh, sort of head for the hills, so it was. These things don't really 
get to the objective that the Israelis say they want, which is to completely destroy Hamas. It, this is not that kind of creature. You can't completely destroy Hamas because with every effort you make, you are potentially radicalizing young Palestinians mm -hmm. who are today seeing their houses being blown down, who are seeing, who are being forced to flee, who are seeing their entire population being uh, denied water, denied electricity, all those things. So mm -hmm. even as you kill a thousand Hamas soldiers, the risk is that a thousand new Hamas recruits are being born, metaphorically speaking, mm -hmm. even as we speak. What, what's the answer here to limit um, civilian deaths, especially of women and children? Is there a way to let them out of Gaza? Um, and I know you want to avoid taking all the Palestinians out of Gaza, right? Because that's they, they well, also some Hamas want that soldiers will go in that, but. Yeah. We also have to start with the reckoning that not everybody wants to leave. Quite a lot of people in, in Palestine, don't, in Gaza, don't want to leave because they're terrified that they won't be allowed back for good reason. You know, many of the, the majority of people who live in Gaza are children and grandchildren of former refugees who, were, who fled to Gaza from other places in Israel and never got to go back to their homes. And so the people in Gaza live in fear that if they leave now, they will not be allowed back. But... At the same time, as the bombs come down, as their houses collapse, they want, they want their families to be safe. So there will be a proportion of people who at least want to get their, their children out. Mm -hmm. The question, the trouble is, where can they, nobody yeah, wants yeah. them. That's the tragedy of, Hamas, of, of Gaza. They have to deal with Hamas on one side, Israel on the other side. They've got no place to go. None of the other Arab countries want them. Palestinians. They don't want the Palestinians because for two reasons. One is they say, look, you, the Egyptians say this first and foremost. You bring all the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians into, into Egypt, that creates a security problem for Egypt. The second thing they say is that, look, you bring these people out of Palestine, you're letting Israel off the hook. Out of sight, out of mind. Once the Palestinians have left Palestine, then Israel doesn't face any pressure to solve the problem. Um, and then there's the, there's the sort of cold reality, which is that these countries simply don't want the headache of having to deal with uh, hundreds mm -hmm. of thousands of Palestinians in their midst. Here's my naive question of the day. Yeah. To what extent does Hamas enjoy the support of the Palestinian people in Gaza? Like one of the questions I ask myself. That's a good is, question we've why been don't asking they, for a week. Why know? don't they force Hamas out somehow i don't i don't know it's it's a question that i've asked myself a, a thousand times when, when i used to go uh, to gaza the thing is that hamas has the guns ordinary citizens can't really afford to rise up against hamas because they've got again they've got no place to run there's nobody backing them right in other situations like this where you have a an armed group uh subjugating the populace the populace has or can at least hope that somebody else will support them if they rise up. Who's going to help the Palestinians if they rise up? Will it be the Israelis? Is there any entity support? Well, there's the PLO, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah the PLA is now long uh, past its revolutionary credential. It's a deeply corrupt, inept organization. It's been run, it, they've had no elections in, in sort of two decades. They're being run by a gerontocracy of deeply corrupt and inept individuals. So the PLA is out. Uh, it took them nearly a week to come up with a statement to say Hamas doesn't represent uh, the Palestinian people. This should have been their statement within minutes of the first news breaking. It took them a week. That gives you a sense of how useless uh, uh, their their, polit their political leaders are. So they are really, the people of, of Gaza are really caught in a bad place. Yeah. We can never really know. There's plenty of anecdotal evidence that they don't like Hamas. Whenever they've had an opportunity to express that, that's the expression that they've given. The it's, Palestinian people, you mean? In Gaza, particularly. Because I've heard conflicting reports. Some people say, you know, yeah. of course, very few of them support Hamas. Yeah. Then others say, uh, people I've talked to last week say 50% of them like Hamas, and the, other, the others yeah. want someone a little bit more extreme than Hamas. No, I wouldn't go that far. They're, these are people who've lived through the consequences of Hamas running uh, their, their little enclave, and they know what damage that has done. I... I, I <coughs> Forgive me. Um, everybody I've ever talked to has said we we would like not to have to depend on Hamas, but we've got nothing else. 
We can never know because you can't hold a poll. You can't hold yeah. a, an opinion poll in <laughs> right. a place like that with the Hamas guns around you. It's like trying to hold on. How many people support Putin in Russia? Right? We can right. never know. How many people support the Castros uh, in, in Cuba? We can never know because people are not allowed to express themselves freely. Do, do, do you expect this to get, to get really bad, to widen out where Iran is involved? Is that, uh, is that something that is a reasonable risk here that we need to be? I mean, I see the U.S. sending a second carrier group in there, which to yeah. me tells me that the U.S. Is, does have a, a valid concern about Iran. Well, it, it, we, we, have cons we should be concerned about Iran, but I, I can't see the Iranians themselves get involved. The, the Iranian modus operandi with Israel has always been they will fight till the last Arab. Yeah. They don't want their blood on the line. They don't want their people and their regime uh, at risk. They're happy to fight using other people as their cannon fodder which is what Ham Hamas is. But they do have other proxies, Hezbollah, most yep. prominently, the, the Shiite uh, militias in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen. They've got this sort of a number of cat's paws, these little uh, proxy armies that they have supplied and, and trained and paid for, uh, for, for decades. And, and that's what is the main concern. If Hezbollah gets in, Why does the Arab happens? world allow them to have so many proxies? I mean, why... Um, don't Saudi Arabia and Egypt, um, you know, Jordan get together and say no more of this Iranian outreach? Because they're not led very well. They're not led by, by uh, they're not open free societies. They're not um, elected representative leaders. These are monarchies or dictatorships. They're highly corrupt and highly inept. I mean, this, the, the Saudi army, take the Saudi army, for example. This is one of the, if you looked at just their hardware, they've been buying American, best of American military hardware for forever, right? They, they pay top dollar, they've got no shortage of money, and they buy the best, shiniest weapons. And they got their, they got trashed by these Houthis in Yemen who are basically operating on, on you know, early 20th century military strategies and, and sort of maybe late 20th century hardware. They got beaten to a pulp. Mm. These, these armies, most of these Arab armies, are designed to protect the regime from their own people. They're, these armies are good at beating up unarmed pro-democracy protesters. Mm -hmm. They're no good at actually fighting any wars, which is why they depend on the American security yep. umbrella, which is why they're not capable of securing themselves. Bobby, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I really try to read your stuff. Now I'm going to set up an alert because Matt showed me how to set up an <laughs> alert so I'd never miss any of your stuff. Bobby Ghosh, he's the editor for Bloomberg Opinion. Really appreciate getting a few minutes of his time as we try to figure out kind of what's yeah, going to Yeah, I mean, we could talk to markets. Bobby for an hour. We could. Here. I know. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about the IPO market. We were just talking earlier about Birkenstock. That was the latest of a number of IPOs that we've seen since kind of that Labor Day weekend. We had a bunch of them uh, kind of teed up. Uh, Birkenstock's trading up 4% today, but it is below its IPO price. The question is, is this, Mark, a little bit of a beginning, a reawakening of the IPO market? Uh, let's check in with our next guest. I think she may have an opinion here. Katie Penny joins us. She said of corporate transaction practice at cost cross-country consulting. She joins us via Zoom. Katie, thanks so much for joining us here. We had a little, uh, you know, open window there in the IPO market. Right after Labor Day, it seems people were getting back to work, getting off the beach. Talk to us about kind of the IPO market today. Is that the beginning of maybe a wider opening of, of this window or not? Yeah, thanks, Paul and Matt, for, for having me. You know, certainly post-Labor Day, with Arm and Instacart and the most recent Birkenstock all coming out into the market, um, certainly attracting attention um, as it relates to the IPO markets. But I think in, in general, what we have seen is with the market volatility and the aftermarket performance from each of those that I specifically named, but, but others as well, that in that net decline position, um, I think, again, there, there likely could be some delays that are coming through as it relates to those that might be considering going, going public. I mean, Birkenstock is, is a strong brand, profitable company, uh, steady consumer base, and it, it, is, it is early, but with price declines after their market debut, 
I think this may delay some other companies that may be considering an IPO debut right now. Is uh, I wonder if the problem with IPOs is that the market environment is no good for them or that companies um, don't necessarily need to come to market the way they previously did for their exits. What do you think? Yeah, I think the market environment certainly is not in in the, their their favor. I mean, if we reflect back, we know 22 was certainly a stagnant year, but looking back to 21 when IPOs were were at their ultimate high, thinking about that strong and steady flow at that point, you know, what were market conditions then? And consumers and companies were were coming out of hibernation, so to speak, post-pandemic, interest rates were low. Financing was inexpensive. Um, consumer spending was up. We know valuations were high, and there was a lot of focus on on growth strategy. Um, all of those influencing the the IPO markets. But if we take a look today, those those same conditions don't don't exist. We know interest rates are high. I know you were talking about that on one of your earlier segments. Um, the possibility of another rate increase and this concept of staying higher for longer certainly drives the cost of capital to be to be expensive. Um, there was, has been some discussion, I know, around the pandemic savings coming to an end, student loan payments all coming back, the geopolitical, um, certainly as it relates to Ukraine, and, and as I know just on your prior segment, the devastation and conflict in Israel, all of those factors really being fluid um, and compounding and really, I, I think, having some negative impact as it relates to those that are considering coming coming to market through an IPO. So some really tough market dynamics right now. Hey, Katie, uh, back when I was doing these uh, IPOs uh, for business, we never used these anchor investors. Um, my anchor investor was always Fidelity. I mean, he was took in twice the allocation of the next uh, highest of the number two uh, offering. Um, that was kind of my anchor. But Talk to us about that anchor investor kind of thing. It seems to become a little bit of a strategy here. Yeah, I would say some some companies, and this is somewhat more more recent. So same as I look over my career as well, it wasn't often to uh, to have these anchor investors or cornerstones. But some companies with the strategy of looking to potentially de-risk their IPO through this way. So um, more or less talking with with investors early using a strategy to identify the, these anchor investors or cornerstones, really with the um, idea to more or less attempt to demonstrate validation and confidence in, in their offering. I don't know, I kind of, I, I, when I first saw that, I said, this is a deal that needs an anchor. It's, it, it, it's, it maybe can't stand on its own. That, that was my view. Um, I don't know, yeah, but I guess yeah. it's, it, this seems to be a little bit more accepted in the IPO marketplace. I was wondering if that's just a reflection something of, that seems to have carried over from SPAC investments. Maybe, you know, maybe. So, all right, how's the uh, pipeline look, Katie, as, as you look towards the remainder of the year? Yeah, I, I think as as far as looking out that um, more or less, given some of the challenges that we just mentioned, it's, it's really creating dynamics for the IPO market. And again, reflecting on some of these that, as we talk about, come out post Labor Day, the aftermarket overall kind of net decline. Yep. Um, I'm not expecting to see a significant uptick in IPOs for the remainder of, of 2024. Certainly, maybe if, if some of these challenges begin to subside or again, we, we tend to move things to um, think of them as normalcy. Then there may be more periods for entry as as we head into the first half of 24 um, before the election nears that again might narrow the window a bit so i think it'll, uh, again through the rest of this year i'm not expecting a, a significant uptick all right i don't know if i had the s p up 15 percent, i could get some companies through i don't know what these kids are doing today uh katie penny <laughs> thanks so much for joining us head of corporate transaction practice at cross country consulting i mean the deals coming out after the labor day they were all look like good companies, you know, and they, and they got, really, yeah, I thought they were, they I mean, were there were a couple companies. Technology. I still don't know exactly what nah, they were doing. I, I thought they were, I thought they were, I mean, it's, you know, arm is a chip company. I don't know. That kind of felt like they were some solid companies, solid track. I records. get arm for sure. Yep. Instacart too. Yep. Kava. I yep. get that. Yeah. 
I Birkenstock mean, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought they're real companies, real, real businesses, real cash flows. I'm surprised they haven't traded a little bit better, but we'll have to, to see here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, we're right in the midst of a lot of the big banks reporting earnings. Uh, and obviously, one of the key topics is just the advances in financial technology, uh, how they're trying to capitalize on that, how it re represents fintech, represents perhaps a competitive threat. So we want to dive a little deeper into that. Brian Hindeman, he joins us. He is the CEO of Blue Ocean Technologies. He joins us via Zoom. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's just take the 30,000 foot view here. Talk to us about Blue Ocean Technologies. What do you guys how do you guys play in this fintech space? Yeah, well, th thanks for having me. So very simply, Blue Ocean Technologies, uh, we have an ATS, an alternative trading system. Uh, we trade U.S. stocks, national market system stocks, when the traditional exchanges are closed. So starting at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time to 4 o'clock in the morning, we'll trade the most active uh, national market system U.S. stocks uh, during that eight-hour period. Um, on any given night uh, during the month of September, we traded over 4,000 different stocks on any given night during the month. So are you a market maker? Are you an agent just putting together buyers and sellers here? Do you make a market? How does that work? So we have market makers on the platform like Jane Street and Virtu that provide two-sided liquidity in these names. Uh, we act uh, like an alternative trading system or very exchange-like. Um, just like NASDAQ, we match buyers and sellers and don't take any principal position. And so your is your a commission, straight up commission? Is that how your business model works? Yeah, I mean, basically it's a, uh, it's, um, we call it a maker taker fee. We, we give a rebate to people that provide liquidity on the platform and we charge a take fee when someone is hitting a bid or lifting an offer and removing liquidity. Uh, and we also charge for market data. So there's two revenue streams for the ATS. So who are your customers? Who's trading here? Is it individual? Is it retail? Is it institutional? Yeah, so primarily, we only interface with FINRA registered broker dealers, right? Okay. So if uh, you're a retail customer, you have to come through your brokerage account like Robinhood or interactive brokers who are currently connected to the platform, right? So right now, I would say it's 95 to almost 100% retail, uh, both here in the States but more importantly, retail coming from the Asia-Pac region. Uh, um, those folks over there want to trade U.S. stocks during their daytime hours. I see. So what's kind of an average transaction size for you in, in shares and dollars? Yeah, so the average you know share size, uh, and we charge on a per share basis, it's somewhere between 150 and 200 shares on any given night. For, per, per transaction? Per transaction. I correct. got you. So, so where are we in terms of... Like, you know, one of the things I've, you know, learned about crypto, particularly Bitcoin, and what's so unusual is it trades all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so you kind of, you leave work on Friday and you look at Bitcoin, you remember it was trading at like, you know, 24,000, you come in on Monday and it's 28,000. Uh, like what, oh, then you're like, oh yeah, they trades over the weekend. Are we ever going to get to that kind of trading for equities? I think we are. And really because of, you know, the way crypto trades, I think U.S. equities are now trading 24 by five. So years ago, when I was at NASDAQ running the NASDAQ platform, we wanted to go ahead and trade 24 hours. But customers just they weren't prepared from a from a call it support perspective. They didn't have the desk or the infrastructure to support 24 hour trading. But now that crypto, as you said, trades 24 uh, by seven, right? Um, futures, even some options trade 23, 24 hours a day. Uh, the infrastructure is in place now to trade 24 by five. We start trading on Sunday night at 8 p.m. Uh, and we wrap up on Thursday uh, at, well, really Friday at, at four in the morning. Um, right now, because of anything clearance and settlement, uh, we're not really prepared as an industry to trade seven days a week. But right now, U.S. equities are trading 24 by five. Interesting. All right. So talk to us about your customers. You mentioned Asia. So do you have any I mean, how, how do you get customers in Asia? How does that kind of all work? Do, do you work with maybe the Tokyo Stock Exchange or how does that work? 
Yeah, so a couple of ways that customers can come in. If they're a Finner registered broker dealer, like many of them over in Asia are, uh, they have a US arm, they can come in directly and interface with Blue Ocean directly. Um, or they can come in sponsored access. So we have some firms that they're Finner registered broker dealers, we interface with them and then they onboard the Asian uh, brokers to interface with them. All right, but then, uh, as you mentioned, we also recently did a deal with the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Uh, the Tokyo Stock Exchange took a 5% stake in Blue Ocean Technologies. Uh, they have 82 brokers that trade on their exchange that will now have access to become subscribers of Blue Ocean, either directly or in a sponsored access fashion, like I previously mentioned. Interesting. How about some of the retail brokers here, like like Robinhood? I mean, it's, Robinhood's just gotten so big so quickly, um, and I'm, I'm guessing there's some demand from, from those customers. Yeah, so Robinhood is a great example. Robinhood Interactive Brokers, uh, U.S. Uh, clients want to trade at a time that's more convenient when they get home from work. The exchanges could be closed on the West Coast, uh, even after hours trading closes at five o'clock on, on, uh, on the exchanges. So Robinhood offers in the U.S. to trade um, on Blue Ocean uh, 24 by five. Uh, but Robinhood's also expanding to, to the European markets also. Uh, firms like Interactive Brokers, they have a very large presence out in the Asia market, and they get U.S. customers, and they also get Asia customers trading on Blue Ocean. So, I mean, are, are you seeing an expansion either, in, or maybe just kind of talks about, you mentioned 150, 200 shares. Do you expect that to grow, um, or do you expect more stocks to be traded? Yeah, how, it, how do you expect the future to look? If I look at the growth this year, we've grown almost 20 times uh, since December of 2022 last year. Uh, so there's been a real upward trajectory on um, the number of stocks that we trade on any given night. Like I said, during the month of September, close to 4,000 different names were traded. Uh, the number of brokers that are connected, uh, retail customers coming in directly or sponsored access, uh, and the amount of shares on any given night. We're close to 30 million shares on any given night, where we finished last year, call it a half a million shares per night. Where do you think that, that 30 million goes maybe over the next year or so? Yeah, I think if I wanted to make some forward-looking statements, uh, I would say that you know we certainly can double that up. Uh, I think certainly get to the 60, 90, 100 million over the course of the next, call it 12 to 18 months. So your company, Blue Ocean, what's the ownership of that company? So Blue Ocean is owned uh, by a uh, variety of partners. Um, obviously, I mentioned the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Uh, our largest investor is Urbana Corporation. Urbana Corporation is a uh, publicly traded company north of the border, a Canadian company. Uh, they own you know, in excess of 35% of Blue Ocean. Interesting. All right, really fascinating story. Brian Hindeman, he is the CEO of Blue Ocean Technologies, uh, talking about uh, trading uh, outside of uh, market hours, uh, electronic trading. And the question is, will there ever be 24-hour trading trend uh, in equities? Uh, truly, uh, you know, something like that you have seven days a week. So really interesting uh, part of the trading dynamic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.